Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So at the time of Isaiah 40 to 66, uh, the section of Isaiah that we're in, Israel is in exile. They've been cast out of the promised land, which the Lord delivered them to. They've been cast out and they've been taken captive by the Babylonians. This wasn't without cause. Israel was guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of disobedience against the Lord. And his punishment to them was delivering them into the hands of their oppressors. His punishment was slavery. So they're in exile, waiting to see, is God going to be faithful to his word? Is God going to save us from this land like he's promised? They wanted a salvation from their immediate circumstances. They wanted a salvation from what they were feeling and seeing, and they wanted it in the way they wanted it. They wanted to get out. They just wanted the next step. They wanted to be out of Babylon. And Isaiah 49, 1-7, Isaiah writes to declare that the, the Lord's going to send a servant to bring Israel this salvation. But in Isaiah 49, he's writing to tell Israel this salvation's better than they could have expected. This salvation is above and beyond what they imagined. Isaiah 49 shows us that the Lord's servant 
is bringing a salvation. He was born to bring a greater salvation to the ends of the earth. So just as Israel needed to look forward to the advent or to the coming of this servant as the only hope of worldwide salvation, we need to see that Jesus coming, that Jesus taking on flesh was to be the servant of the Lord who accomplished salvation and offers it to the ends of the earth. So Jesus, the eternal son, second person of the triune God, became a man to achieve and offer salvation to the ends of the world. So this morning, as we look at this text, I want you to see rightly that Jesus is the light of the world. He is humanity's only hope of salvation. And I want you to live rightly in response to his light. So simply put, we need to see Jesus rightly and we need to live rightly. We need to know Jesus and live rightly. So I want to show you the Lord's plan in this passage. I want to show you the Lord's plan, which will be our three points of our sermon this morning. And the first point is going to be the servant's preparation. Servant's preparation. The second point, and I'll repeat the, all of these as we, get, as we get there in the sermon. Uh, so if you don't get them all, uh, just listen later. Uh, the second point is the servant's purpose. So point one, servant's preparation. Point two, servant's purpose. And point three will be the servant's path. So first, we start, we start with our servant's purpose. We need to, when, whenever we approach a text, whenever we go to the Bible, we need to first be observing the text. We need to first know what is going on here. So in Isaiah 49, it appears that we're dropping into the middle of a conversation. And rather than just dropping into the middle of a conversation... We're dropping into the middle of a song set list. Isaiah 49 is the second song in a group of songs in Isaiah. And each one of these songs is about this servant of the Lord that would bring this salvation. So we start off by knowing that we're talking about the servant of the Lord. And in these songs, they're in Isaiah 42 if you wanted to write these down, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52 slash 53, and I missed Isaiah 50. Um, and in each of these, we see another element of this servant. We see his life. We see his ministry. We see his sufferings and his exaltation. And as we, as we step back and we examine the whole Bible, the Old and New Testament, we cannot help but see how Jesus' life ministry, death, and resurrection in the Gospels show us that he is this servant. This is why Isaiah is oftentimes called the fifth gospel, because it gives us our Savior. So we enter this song with the servant of the Lord, and the servant of the Lord is a prophet. We see this here in verse 1 because he, he is pronouncing God's word to a people. And he says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, O people from afar. This is very similar to prophets throughout the scriptures 
right? They, they all announce to an audience, either they're talking to Israel directly, oftentimes they talk to Israel's persecutors like uh, Babylon, uh, Jonah talks to Nineveh directly, they are sent to speak to a specific people. Jeremiah even has an audience, but he's, he, his audience is to Israel and the nations, but each of these nations has a, a border around it. Each of these nations is a specific people. But notice the audience of the servant in verse 1. O coastlands, people from afar, this prophet, his message has no boundaries. Where are the people afar? Everywhere. The people over there, the people over here, the people in China, the people in the nations we don't even know about. People afar, it's for all who have ears. And this prophet carries a specific message. God's prophets always carry a specific message, and it's known by one phrase. You read it over and over and over again. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. A prophet is known by speaking God's word. But what about our prophet here? He says in verse 1, listen to me. Give attention to me. No prophet, no true prophet of Israel ever dared say, listen to me. The penalty for that was death. Rather, they spoke, thus says the Lord. But over and over and over again in Isaiah, we read, we read Isaiah say, thus says the Lord, listen to me. As, as the Lord is the one who says, listen to me. So what's this tell us about our servant? He's speaking with his own authority. But whoa, whoa, whoa. How can he do that? God, Isaiah 42, verse 6, this, verse 7. This is a verse we should memorize. I am the Lord. This is the Lord speaking. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give no, to no other nor my praise to carved idols. God is clear. He is not in the business of sharing glory or authority with others. That is where Jehovah's Witnesses, down the road from here on Fort Johnson, would say, great, full stop, right there. God doesn't share glory. He doesn't glorify Jesus. Jesus is a created being, not going to share the same glory. But that's wrong. That's wicked. That's heretical. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, has shared the same glory as God from before the foundation of the world. John chapter 17, verses 4 to 5. Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all that you set out for me. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Jesus is a created being. Why would he be praying for God to glorify him? Ask a Jehovah's Witness. Why would he be praying that? Wait, wait, there's more, there's more. So he says, glorify me, but how does he say glorify me? Glorify me with the same glory that I had with you in heaven before the world existed Jesus, the servant Lord, possessed 
divine glory. And John says it was glory as of the only Son begotten by the Father. Jesus says, listen to me because he shares the same authority as God because he is God. So before we go any further in our text this morning, we need to really sit on that. We need to really sit. We need to understand before we take another moment in the sermon, before we take another moment in our lives, we need to see that Jesus is and has always been God. He has always been eternal. He has always been existing. He has always had the same glory and authority as the Father. John says this clearly at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. He was with God before creation, and all things in creation flow from Him as rivers flow from a mountaintop. All creation flows from Jesus. No subatomic particle floating out in the, in the universe exist, existed apart from Him. The author of Hebrews says this of Jesus, You, Lord laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you roll them up, like a garment they'll be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Not only was Jesus before all things, or the creator of all things, but he possessed this attribute of God alone called immutability, or God's unchangeableness. He does not perish. He will not change. Even though all creation will wear through like a pair of old socks, Jesus will remain for all eternity. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the servant, Jesus, receives the same glory as God. He's with God before creation. Creation comes from him, and he is eternal unchanging, immortal. This servant is the one we're talking about today. This is the servant who demands, listen to me. So I urge you, listen to this servant. Listen to him. He demands you listen. But he's not demanding like a, like a boss barking orders at you at work or standing over your shoulder waiting for you to mess up. And he doesn't remain distant. He doesn't remain distant or lack compassion. Rather, he demands you listen as he shows himself a humble servant. Now, now that we've established that the servant is the Lord, that the servant is God, we need to, we need to step and see even further how this servant has been prepared for his ministry. And uh, we'll look at the last part of verse 1 and in verse 2. And in these, in these six lines, we th- see three couplets. So as we look through Hebrew poetry, uh, we see uh, oftentimes you'll see it indented funny in your text, and oftentimes there, there are two lines that go together. That's a couplet. What it's doing is taking a step further and explaining uh, the purpose of the text. So in 1 and 2, we see three couplets. And just follow me as we read this. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. So he received a, 
He received a, or, sorry, I, I missed verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb. He received a special call from the Lord. He received a special ministry, a special position from the Lord. From the body of my mother, he named me. The, the special call carries a, a specific name, but he was concealed in the body of his mother. As normal as all of us have experienced he made my mouth like a sharp sword. So he, his word carries the same level of power, authority, and precision, effectiveness as God himself. Hebrews says that his word can pierce between soul and spirit. It can discern between the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Yet in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He was hidden in the comforting hand of the Father He made me a polished arrow, carefully crafted, carefully shaped, so that he could shoot at distances to hit a very specific, precise target. Yet, in his quiver, he hid me away. So I hope you see what he's saying here. On the one hand, he's prepared as a weapon going out for battle. He has all power, authority, effectiveness to do God's purposes. He tells his disciples, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 26... He tells them that if he wanted to pray to the Father and ask for help, God would send him more than 12 legions of angels to come deliver him. Revelation presents a picture of Jesus as this conquering king on a white horse, surrounded by heavenly armies with a sword coming out of his mouth, coming ready to pronounce judgments. Jesus was prepared as the fierce Lion of Judah, our conquering king, to spread truth. And we can get behind this, can't we? We can. And unfortunately, we can often get behind this ahead of our maturity. Right? So often you hear the phrase cage stage. Right? You might hear that phrase. And it's like, oh man, this guy's so vicious for the truth that you better put him in a cage. Because he doesn't really know what he's doing. Or oftentimes maybe we get a little offended or maybe we get... We, we get a little bit out of shape when we, when we disagree with someone, whether on the internet or in person. And all it takes is that little disagreement for us to go off as a truth warrior because we know what God's word says. One author helps us understand this. And uh, to paraphrase him, he says that uh, responding in these ways is more like theological immaturity. Rather than maturity and zeal for the truth, this is immaturity. Because what you think you know about the word has outpaced how you know how to live it out. Right? So as we we go to the scriptures, as we gain knowledge, knowledge is amazing. Knowledge of the word is, is gold. It should not outpace our maturity. It should not outpace what we know of the Savior who didn't take all of his knowledge and authority and power for his own gain. No, but our character should be similar to his. He was a conquering lion, a weapon prepared for battle. Yeah, he came in great humility, hidden in the hand, hidden in a quiver, hidden in the womb of a young woman. Our mighty God came in the form of a man. The immortal became mortal. The immaterial became material. The true God true man, the limitless creator, took on creaturely limitations. The independent God who needs no one came as a dependent infant on his mother. 
The one who could not be seen has been seen and felt and held. This is the beauty of the incarnation. As a weapon hidden in the hand, an arrow hidden in the quiver, our mighty God, our Savior, was hidden in human flesh. This is the preparation of the Lord's servant. He was hidden in the flesh. And this is what we meditate on this year. This is what we meditate on this time of the year. In this season of Advent, we celebrate God hidden in flesh. But why would we celebrate this? If we just, if we just stop right there, we're missing it. We're missing it. There's far more than Jesus being a baby. If it stops there, it's like a, a bad mistake. So we must see the second point, the Lord's, the servant's, purpose. Why? For what reason did he come? What's the goal of the servant? Well, verse 3, we'll read that. He says, you are my servant. This is the Lord now talking to the servant. Verses 1 and 2, where the servant saying he's received this word. Now verse 3 is the Lord talking back to the servant. He says, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And this sounds a lot like the catechisms that we teach our kids, right? Why did God create you and everything? For his own glory. And this is the same reason why he sent the servant into the world. For his glory. He left the Father's side for his glory. He ministered on earth, on earth for the Father's glory. Now it's easy to throw this out. It's easy to throw out, yeah, for God's glory. Glory to God. Praise God without really understanding why or what we're saying. But Jesus fully glorified God because in his life, he fully obeyed the Lord. He fully submitted to the Lord. He fully did not take advantage of anything he had, but he submitted to do the Father's will. Even as Paul says in Philippians, he was obedient even to the point of death. His food was to do God's will. We sing about this in... uh, in one of our songs where we say, In his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. And this is the exact reason why the Lord in verse 3 calls him Israel. Did y'all catch that? He calls him Israel. This is the name given to the servant. And it's a name we see in a couple other instances. The first instance is of Jacob. Right, So Jacob is in Bethel, house of God is the name. And this place is very specific. It's the same place where God gave his covenant and promises to Abraham. In the promises he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to give you as a blessing to the nations. And it's in the same exact spot that he confirms that promise with Jacob. And it's in that same exact spot that after Jacob wrestles with the Lord, the Lord blesses him and calls him Israel. But if you, if you look over Jacob's life in Genesis, you realize Jacob does not carry out what it means to be Israel or what it means to carry out the promises given to Abraham. The second instance is when, is when the Lord leads his people out of, out of Egypt. He calls them Israel and he says, you're going to be to me a holy Uh, A holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for me. Calls them Israel. But where are we at in the story here? Remember, they're in exile for their disobedience, for their idolatry. Jacob, 
Israel did not live up to what it meant to be Israel. So referring to the servant as Israel demonstrates that he is exactly what the nation and what Jacob were created to be, yet they failed. The servant of the Lord came to do what no other could do. Isaiah 42.6 says that this servant is a covenant for his people. This servant came to do what Adam failed to do, what Abraham failed to do, what every other head of the covenant failed to do. He came to bring God's rule and blessing afar over all the ends of the earth. For as the curse is found, he will do this first. He will mediate God's rule and blessing first by bringing Jacob back to him and gathering Israel into him. Now, this is a hot this is a hotbed of conversation here that can be had another time. But to simply stay on track, we can say, the Lord's preserving a remnant of Israel. That's very clear. Isaiah 10 makes that very clear. Isaiah 49, verse 6, he said he's going to bring back the preserved of Israel. He's bringing a remnant of this nation back to himself through the ministry of his servant. But why does he do this? Because Israel over and over disobeyed and rebelled. Why would he do this? Verse 7. Because the Lord who's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful to his promises. He does this to show that God's faithfulness extends to guilty people. It extends to guilty sinners. So God's faithfulness to redeem the chosen of Israel should give us great confidence in his promises. He didn't leave Israel. He didn't abandon them. He's faithful to them. So when we, in times of despair, feel like the servant in verse 4 saying that all's in vanity, all's in vanity, we can have great confidence that God's going to be faithful. He's going to be faithful to us through his promises and through his son. So as he preserved a remnant of Israel, as he's preserving Israel, he will preserve you in the midst of your sufferings, in the midst of your depression, in the midst of your struggling. Jesus will preserve you. The Lord will be faithful to you. Why? Because Jesus is our covenant. Jesus is our head. And as the new and better Adam, the covenant for his people, this servant extends God's rule and blessing beyond Israel. Read verse 6. If this doesn't put a fire in you. He says, it's too light a thing. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. God is supernaturally preserving a people who have been sinful. He's supernaturally bringing them from all Israel over all time back to himself. Supernaturally. Small potatoes. The Lord says, too light. That's not big enough. Set your sights down the road 
turn the volume up a bunch and you're still not going to understand. What he says in verse 6 is, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This plan of salvation is greater than just an ethnic people. It's greater than just saving a specific people from a specific spot of land. No, this salvation is qualitatively different. God is fulfilling His promises to Abraham to bless all families of the earth through Jesus. He comes to make His blessings known for as the curse is found all over the earth. He's coming to mediate God's blessing. So his, his salvation extends beyond Jerusalem. It extends beyond a Middle Eastern demograph. It, expends, it extends beyond the coastlands, beyond all people afar. It extends to every corner of the earth, beyond Charleston, South Carolina, the United States, America. It extends to every continent, every country over the earth. And how does it do that? Salvation through the servant is offered to all people as the servant becomes a light for the nations. So this is the purpose. This is the purpose. Worldwide salvation. Jesus came to be a light for the nations. Living in in the time that we live in, in this epoch of the light bulb, of electricity, we, we often take lights for granted, right? It's just, I mean, it just takes a flip of a switch, or if you have a light, it's just a click of a button, and you can see in the dark, or not even that. I mean, just pull out your phone, and like, oftentimes all you have to do is shake your phone, right? And you got a light to, to look in the backyard, and look in the car in the night. We take it for granted, but Israel, Israel had a really good understanding of what it meant that God said he's a light, right? So, Think of Moses. God appeared to him in a burning bush, filled this cave with light. God leads Egypt, leads Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus as a pillar of cloud by day. What about it when it's dark? A pillar of fire at night to light their path for them. Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and salvation. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So, what does it mean that Jesus is light of the world? What does this mean for this worldwide salvation that he offers? How does the, the light qualify our salvation? I want to offer you five meditations or seven, depending how you look at them, on what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. So, number one, light symbolizes fullness of life. Light symbolizes fullness of life. This is in 1 John. We pick this up. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, connect these two realities of light and life. John says... He's testifying about the 
word of life, we realize that it's Jesus because he says, the word that we have, we touched him, we felt him, we've seen him, this word of life. And after that, after he calls him the word of life, he refers to him as just life, this life, Jesus, life. When we get down to verse 5, he makes this statement. First John 1, 5, he says, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And in, and in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So because Jesus is light, and the light is fullness of life, The salvation which Jesus provides is life itself. The salvation Jesus brings is newness of life. As true Israel, the head of a new humanity, he is bringing life to all who believe in him. Second, as true light, Jesus brings God's presence into a world plagued with darkness. Jesus brings God's presence in a world plagued with darkness. So just as the earth without the sun would disappear in minutes, would freeze, would harden over, would be desolate and dead and dark. There'd there'd be no light off the moon because the moon just reflects the sun. You might get a little faint glow of the stars. Darkness, death on the earth without the great ball of light shining on us. Just like the earth would be dead and dark apart from the sun, humans, humanity is dead and in darkness apart from the light of Christ. Jesus came among a people who were dead. He came among a people who were living in darkness And there's been no shortage of sin and suffering since the beginning of the world, right? Anger, deception, greed, lust, fighting, pride, plague humanity. Plagues us. You don't have to look farther than your own self. We're all tempted towards it. And apart from the light of Christ shining on your heart, you're still dead in sin. You're still dead in darkness. Your neighbors, your children, your co-workers, by nature, are born in spiritual darkness and apart from Christ live in darkness as they are blind to Him. It was to a world darkened by sin and corruption that Jesus came to bring light and life. So as, as light for the world, number three, Jesus doesn't just communicate salvation doesn't just tell you where salvation is Jesus is salvation he doesn't just tell you about salvation he is salvation John 3:16 often quoted verse for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life For God did not send His Son, in verse 17, He didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 
It was the Son Himself who was given for salvation. Jesus is our salvation. He is righteousness. He is eternal life for all who believe in Him. That is our only hope of salvation. Hear me, that is your only hope of salvation. He is the only way. And the gospel call is the same to everybody, people afar and people near. Believe the servant Lord Jesus and receive Him as life. He is life. He will bring you life. He gives generously His Spirit to all who call on Him. All who believe in Jesus. Point four, as light of the world, Jesus gives light to everyone. Jesus gives light to everyone. John 1, chapter 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. His purpose to come was to give light to everyone, to offer salvation to all. The salvation Christ offers is to the ends of the earth. It's not just a select people that he offers it to like, yeah, we get, we get along real well, I'm going I'm to offer it to you. Or, I don't really like the clothes you're wearing, I'm not going to offer it to you. I don't speak your language, I'm not going to offer it to you. It's offered to everyone. Everyone. They have the same offer of life with God. Believe in Jesus. So this should encourage us to freely share the gospel. It should encourage us to the person that we don't really like at work. We should get close to them. Draw near to them. Talk about the gospel with them. The same gospel presentation that you give our pastors in your interview that's 60 seconds or two minutes. That's the same gospel you should memorize and tell to your coworkers, Tell to your kids. Tell to your family, your friends. The people you should meet on a walk. This is where we deviate if we have five or seven. You determine how you want to do it. 4A or 5. 4A. The, the light is given to all. Some choose darkness over light. Some choose darkness over light. Likely, there are some in here who are choosing darkness over light. Right? There's some in here who are walking in darkness. To say that Jesus gives light to everyone is not to say that everyone will respond and receive light. This is the sobering message. People either don't want to hear or they make fun of. They make light of saying that hell, people just all they talk about is hell. All they talk about is judgment. We need to. We need to. We need the warning. Darkness is death. When the rubber meets the road, all must respond to the light. Jesus came to a Jewish people. In, chapter, in John chapter 1, he says, Jesus, the light of the world, came to his own. The people who had promises, the covenants, the knowledge. What's it say? They, his own didn't receive him. John makes it clear in, in chapter 3 verse 19. People are condemned not because Jesus came in the world. People are condemned because they loved their darkness more than they loved the light. Now, loving darkness doesn't just look like the extreme cases, right? It doesn't just, it doesn't just look like the extreme cases of 
of uh, abandoning the faith. It doesn't just look like the people who are on street corners holding up signs saying, God is dead. It doesn't, it doesn't have to look like that. It surely does. Darkness does. But darkness can look like being deceived. Darkness can look like listening, l- listening to your parents at church, but being disobedient to your parents at home. Right? Darkness can look like coming to church yet neglecting Christ and his body. Darkness, darkness doesn't just look extreme. You may live a relatively good life. You may not drink as much as your unbelieve, unbelieving friends. You may live a relatively good life, but you still may be in darkness. Why? Why? Because when it boils down, it doesn't matter, to, it doesn't matter what it is you're doing. When you boil it down, the fruit doesn't determine the plant. The plant determines the fruit, and the fruit shows the plant. What it boils down to is your heart. It boils down to your love. Do you love the light of the world that gives life to all it touches? Or do you love your darkness and harbor it? Hold it it real close. Do you not repent of your sin? Do you hide it under a table so that people won't, so that people won't see it? The, cost, the gospel call is, is still for you. For those who are disobedient to parents. For those who are deceptive. For those who are sexually immoral. The gospel call is for you and it's always for you. Repent. Believe in the light of life. 4B. Six, light gives birth to the light of life, right? Light gives birth to the light of life, or life begets, light begets light. Whoever follows Jesus, John is clear in chapter 8, whoever follows Jesus will not walk in darkness. If you follow Jesus, you're not going to make a practice of walking in darkness. Why? You have the Spirit, and the Spirit won't let you. Right? The Spirit will keep you. Psalm 36, verse 9 says, For with you, Lord, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see life. Faith in Jesus is the means by which we're united to God. We have fellowship to God through His Spirit. And we receive new life. If you're united to Jesus through the Spirit, you'll begin to model Jesus through the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you won't let sinful practices remain. You'll take every effort. You will take every opportunity to cut it off. By the Spirit, we are called to wage war against our sins. Not to say, I'm only going to wage war against my sin when people know about it. Right? Wage war before it's found out because there's coming a day where it will be found out. And when it's found out on that day, it's, there, no punches will be held. It will be the judgment coming to your unbelief. But if we have the Spirit, we'll try and be measured in our speech. 
we're going to be we're going to be gentle. We're going to be kind. If we have the spirit, you're going to you're going to wage war against the things that the culture says it's not a big deal. You told a little white lie. You're going to wage war against the things that are nagging and pestering sins in your life. Why? You're united to the light. You are in the light and darkness cannot remain in the light. When you flip a, a light switch on, there's no darkness. It's all light. It's all bright. We have the scriptures, brothers and sisters. We have God's word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. His word. The scriptures are here to help you in your, dark, in your, in your depression. Scriptures are here to equip you to endure the little years. They're here for you. When it's really difficult to read them. Because you got, you got kids just pestering you for stuff. For things. Things they need. You've got the scriptures here. We've got one another here. We've got the church here to help us walk in the light. So call someone. My kids just said this and I don't know how what to do with it. All I want to do is yell. Call someone, text them, get together, confess it. We have one another to remind us of his word. It's there to help us walk in the light. So soak it. Soak it up like a sponge. Like a, like a dry sponge soaked in water. Soak up God's word through reading it, through listening to it, through speaking it to one another. Soak it up. His are the words of eternal life, and His words create life in us. Number, number five or seven, those who love the light become lights. John the Baptist came, and it was very clear. John said, I am not the light. I'm coming to tell you of the light. Through our union with Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 5 tells his disciples, you're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. You're a lamp on a table. Not that we're Christ. Not that we're the Savior, the one to come save the nations. But in Christ, we are lights. That's, a, that's an objective reality. Take it to the bank. You are a light if you are in Christ. So what's that mean? Let your light shine before your neighbors so that they would see your good deeds. They would see your good works, the fruit the light that is emitting from you, and that they would respond by glorifying God. Matthew chapter 5. Paul says in Philippians 2, what's it look like for us to be lights? Don't grumble. Don't complain. Right? How are we going to show a right picture of our Savior, the light of the world, if we're at war with one another? if we're grumbling, if we're not united, if we can't get over little differences, if we're bitter, if we're stubborn, how, how are we going to speak to a watching world in a time that is plagued with confusion? Right? We need to be unified in the light. Put aside our differences. 
Does our schedule speak of the light of life? Does our, do our finances speak of this mission? Does your, your, your words towards your kids, are they, are they out of self-control and patience? I had to confess last night to my son that I, I was impatient. I, I let harshness come out of my mouth. We're not perfect. We won't be. Until we are with the true light. Kids, you will shine as lights. Listen, kids. You will shine as lights in a world if you obey your parents. Simple. Obey your parents. You will stick out like a sore thumb in a school, in a culture, on a team that is disobedient to parents. You will. Our lives should speak of this transformation, but it shouldn't just be in our living. It should be in our speaking. Romans 10 is clear. How, how are they going to believe if they don't hear? They have to hear, so we have to tell them. Jesus says to the Father in John chapter 17, Father, I, just as you have sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. The servant Lord who brings salvation and light calls us to take the light to the nations. So we must be serious about proclaiming this gospel, this salvation to all peoples. That's why we partake in the Emmanuel Network. right? That's why we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It's why we support missionaries financially and through prayer. It's why our pastors labor week after week after week on Sunday mornings to pray in our prayer gathering for people that we don't know how to pronounce their names. So that the gospel would reach people that we don't know, but the Lord knows. So let's take a step beyond that. What will it look like in your family? What's it look like? You need to reorient your finances. You need to reorient your schedule, family commitments to advance this mission. Maybe it looks like, maybe if the Spirit's working, maybe it looks like you reorienting your entire life. To see this mission go to people who have not been known. Whatever it is, we should be intentional to carry on this mission because we are lights in the world. So we turn back to Isaiah 49. We've seen that the Lord's purpose, the servant Lord's purpose, is to be a light for the nations. To bring worldwide salvation. And we see our third point, how. How does this happen? Because he doesn't just come and like bring a Christmas gift that says salvation, to salvation, to world, here it's salvation. Like it's not that kind of a thing. He doesn't just bring it and just you open it up. No, the servant Lord worked. He, in verse 4, spent his strength. Not an ounce of his strength was left. He spent it in obedience He spent it achieving salvation in his ministry. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the test of a covenant head. He was perfectly mediating God's blessing and rule as he was on earth. He perfectly obeyed. He was in perfect submission. All of his work was good. And if he were in Charleston, he'd be sailing off into the sunset on a new boat. Because that that would be the Charleston dream. He, he didn't do that. If it were the Charleston dream, he would do that. 
he would be sailing off into the sunset. But our Savior, his work is good, and it was in perfect submission, labored. In verse 4, he says, I've labored in vain. I've, sent, I've, I've spent every ounce of my strength, and it's vanity. And we, speak, we read in verse 7 that he says that the Lord is speaking. He says, I'm speaking to one deeply despised, hated, abhorred by the nations. Abhorred by not just his people, but all people. After his perfect obedience, it appeared that all was in vain. Jesus, the true light to the world, was rejected by the world. His own people and all nations thought that they could take him and use him for their own gain. Use him and abuse him for their satisfaction. On the darkest day in history, the crucified Lord was offered up. He was despised and rejected by the world. This is what Isaiah 53 communicates to us of the suffering servant. This is the day. This is the day. He's the suffering servant, the darkest day. And we've come to know it as Good Friday. Right? We've, we've come to know the darkest day in human history as Good Friday. And why is it good? In the words of one songwriter, on the cross is Jesus hurt and bled. He was really crushing the serpent's head. As he hurt and bled, he was crushing the serpent's head. As true man, he offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. And as true God, the immortal, invisible, immutable, unchanging, the grave could not hold him. He rose from the grave, destroying the power of the grave and the one who has the power of the grave. And delivering us from sin and slavery to sin. The servant who labors in vain can respond with Father, respond to the Father seated at his right hand saying, Surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense, my, my payment, my reward for this spending of my strength is with the Lord. We only, we only celebrate the, the glory of the incarnation because of the glory of the resurrection. We only celebrate the coming of our Savior because He died. We celebrate His birth because He died. Not just because He died, but because He rose. To have newness of life, have eternal life with the Father. So Jesus was one despised and hated by the world, yet He came to offer salvation to the ends of the world for the glory of God. So this is His path. This is his path right here. Suffering and vindication. He suffered and rose from the dead. Being triumphed and declared son of God in power. And if you love the light, the servant who is despised is seen as holy because God is faithful. Verse 7. And if you love the light, it's apparent. Verse 7. The one who's faithful has chosen you. He's chosen you if you love the light. And for those who love the light, we have this everlasting hope. I want to leave you with this. Isaiah 
chapter 60, verses 19 and 22, talk about the, the end times hope that we have. The end time salvation that we have. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall your moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the works of my hand, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time I will hasten it. Let's pray.